Last night we worked through the second session, we worked through the authority issue. Right? So when we hear people talk about how to change and what biblical change is and and all the various elements of progressive sanctification, or if they're not talking about sanctification, they're just talking about life and they're discussing uh, this is the way you should live and this would what this is what would be good for you. When you hear all those various conversations, I was encouraging you to take a step backwards and say along the way, uh, what authority is this person depending upon in order to help me change? Right, Because that's a critical question. God's word is the foundation for all of life change. And so if someone's telling you this is the way you need to live, this is what you ought to do, then it's important to know actually that what they're saying is from God's word. So as Kyle and I were talking about this morning, he asked specifically if I would talk about creation as a counseling event because it sets the stage for the dynamic of biblical change. right? So when we say, how does the Bible think about change and what is necessary in change? Why is it important? It comes down to, I would suggest, uh, the early chapters of Genesis and then how we respond to those particular chapters. So when we think about it, we consider first life in a fallen world. right? Your, it's interesting when you follow along and listen to how Jesus talks to the Pharisees and talks to others. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of John 8. In the last uh, couple of the last year, I've done a verse-by-verse study through John as part of an epistle class, or as part of a gospel class that I'm doing in the undergraduate Baptist Bible College. And this particular passage interested me because when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he specifically said, you are of your father, the devil. That's interesting. Often, we don't think about the fact that in the Bible, really, there are two categories. Either your father is God through the adoption process, or your father is the devil and you were born into his family. Right in Ephesians 2, it says that when you're born, you're dead in trespasses and sins, and it describes you as a child of wrath. Right, You are born with this uh, disposition, a sinful disposition. You're born in Adam, and as someone who's born in Adam with the sinful disposition, you're a child of wrath. You are a child of disobedience. You're not of God. Right, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, I think Ephesians 4 as well, 17 to 19, describes what that looks like as well in terms of just life in, and I'm, I can't quote that one, so let me look at it. It says, I say therefore and testify that you should no longer walk like the rest of the Gentiles, and then it describes depravity in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's the unsaved. And they're of their father, the devil. So when we look and when we think about living in a fallen world, people are going to do what is typical to their nature. I don't know. My wife sometimes not I don't think when she's trying to encourage me 
she tip she will say something like, "You know what? You didn't fall far from your family's tree." And I remind her, "Well, you took on that name, right? It's uh, <clears throat> I did not force you to do that. Almost thirty years. We're we're working on our twenty ninth year. Uh, well, yeah, that's." That's part of life. You learn from your parents. And my children, I'm sure some dear girl will say to my boys, boy, you're so much like your dad. And that may not be a compliment to them either. Right? That's part of life. We learn from our fathers and our mothers, and we tend to live that way. You hang out with people. I, I love to see it in premarital counseling. And I'm sure when... a when a couple tells their parents, yeah, I'm going to be doing premarital with Pastor Kevin, they're probably thinking, what secret is he going to learn about our family, right? Because that things, those things tend to come out in those conversations. And so we learn a lot from our father. So when you think about life in a fallen world, right, the world is just typical to their father, right? It's, it's hard. And we see the beginnings of that in Genesis. Now, we talked about this briefly last night. I'm giving you a really simplified version now. But when you say, so what is counseling? Essentially, counseling is bringing the word of God to another person. And so as we bring the word of God to another person, it's important for us to put that in a broader context, to put it in a sense of what does change look like And why is it necessary? So to begin that process, let's begin with the fact that the need for biblical counseling began in Genesis. The need for biblical counseling began in Genesis. And in Genesis 1, we see that man was never meant to live on earth without counsel. Now, this is important for you to see, especially those of you who possibly have grown up in, you've been in the church a while, and you think of counseling as primarily corrective. Right? You think, oh, well, people get crosswise, or they're having conflict, or whatever it is, and so they go for counseling because they have problems. The reality is, we needed God's word. We needed a word from God before sin ever existed. We were never meant to walk and live on this planet from underneath the word of God and submitting to that word. So what do we know? God is the creator, right? We see that in chapter one of Genesis. Of course, you get to, in the first couple of verses, God creates. You get then to verse 27, and specifically, he's creating man. And so it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of, I should start in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so we see that God is the creator. Once created, man needed God's voice. Look at verse 28. Then God blessed them and said to them. Now, the blessing of verse 26 essentially means that God gave man everything he needed in terms of mankind in order to do what God has called him to do, right? So that's the blessing that we're talking about here. God blessed them and God gave them words. 
right? God began to help them know how to live in his world, right? He's the sovereign. He's the God that rules, and man is the subregent. Man is the one ruling underneath him. And so God began to speak in verse 28. In fact, God configured man's universe for him. So God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then it goes on from there. God said, right? So various ways in chapter one, and then of course in chapter two, when we get more of the detail, God keeps saying, Adam, this is what I expect. Adam, this is what you should do. In chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. That implies purpose. Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, right? So God spoke, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And then it describes God creating Eve. So God configured man's moral universe. And so from that standpoint, we would say that God's voice was the first voice prior to sin. Prior to anything else, God spoke, and when God spoke, it basically provided man the categories for living, provided man purpose, provided man everything he needed to know how to honor the Lord. So man was never meant to live without counsel. Then in Genesis 2, what? Man begins to live and do as God commands. So God makes Adam, God makes Eve, right? It says, uh, verse 19, we stopped a few verses, we stopped in 18. It says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. So man is obedient to God. He was required to tend and to keep. Right? Adam was there in order to uh, the creation, man, to follow the creation mandate, fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So as that process takes place, God speaks, then Adam speaks. He brings them to Adam, and Adam begins, verse 19, and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. So Adam begins to use his own voice. Now, how is he using his voice? He's using his voice as a meaning maker, right? He is observing, and as he he observes, he's applying his own meaning. Now, how was that being applied? It was under the canopy of God's authority. It was under the canopy of being submissive to what God had called him to do. So God's voice conforms the uni- helps him configure the universe in a way that tells him this is good, this is evil, 
This is right. This is wrong. This is what I want you to do. This is what I do not want you to do. So God gives Adam a broad sense of this is the way I want you to live. And then in chapter 2, Adam begins to live that way. The reality is, since Genesis 2, man can't leave things alone. Right? In the moment of seeing, we engage. Right? So there's two texts in my mind that, are, that I think about. One specifically, of course, in Ecclesiastes. It says, and I set my heart, this is Solomon speaking, I'm in Ecclesiastes 1.13. I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that's done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. What burdensome task? The burdensome task of trying to figure out what's in front of us. We can't leave a puzzle without the right pictures in it. This week we went over to uh, we went over to Mount Rushmore, and of course you go to the you go to the cabin where the I don't even know who it was that sculpted it. We I saw it this week, but we go there, we look at it, and we see that it was going to be much further, right? They had coats and they had hands and all kinds of other stuff they were going to put in it. But somewhere along the way, they gave up on that part of the rest of Mount Rushmore, right? You know this much better than I. Reality is my sons couldn't leave that alone, but they want to know why was it not finished? There's more here. It would look better if all the rest of it was there. We went to Crazy Horse later. No, Crazy... It's not Crazy Horse. What is it? It is Crazy Horse. Okay. <laughs> forgive me. Whatever I did wrong there, forgive me. There is a person, my granddad, who is 103, he calls a guy Crazy Horse. And so in my brain, I don't know what, I may be saying this wrong. Charlie Horse something, I don't know. So we go over there. And of course, it's on, that's only started. They were up doing something, I think June 5th, maybe one day this week, they have the 75th anniversary. And so they were up trying to put the final pieces on the thumbnail of his hand. Uh, and so that was kind of cool, actually, to see them doing that particular work. But my son, Kyler, who's a, a bit of an artist himself, he was all into that particular a couple hours. He wanted to see what they were doing, how they were doing it. He wants to put it together. Right, And as we've gone from one kind of tree and hill to the grasslands, as we've gone back and forth, it's been interesting to hear the boys talk to each other and, and us and just ask, why is it this way? Right? Why is it here and not there? Right? What does, what, why are the badlands? Why do they have that look? And just a hill over, it looks completely different. Right? We live in the plateau in Springfield. We live on the south side of the plateau in uh, south of Ozark. And our house is probably 100, 200 yards away from where the plateau ends. And then you get into the Ozark Mountains. Right? So it's fascinating to move your driving down the road. It's all flat. It looks typical to the Ozarks. And then you hit the Ozark Mountains, and it's just within a couple of yards that it all changes. You say, so what, why is it this way? 
Right? We can't look at something and not wonder. That's what he's saying in Ecclesiastes 1.13. God has given us a burdensome task. What is that task? We're always trying to make sense of our world. Now, Solomon's conclusion was what? All is frustratingly enigmatic, right? We can't put it together. There aren't enough pieces there. In fact, in verse 15 of Ecclesiastes 1, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. We don't know how many people are over at the coffee shop sitting in here. I could say I've got $100 for anybody who can tell me how many people are at the coffee shop or at the, at the great hamburger place downtown, the something and buns. Is it burger and buns or whatever that is? Fantastic food. You would say... Well, that's an unfair question. You're asking me, you're offering me $100 if I can give you the correct answer, but what I can't see, I can't number. In life, we don't have God's perspective. We have only what he's given us. That's limited to the Bible. And so in the process, like Ecclesiastes 12 and 13, he says, let's hear the conclusion then. We trust, fear God. And we obey God. We trust and obey with what we have, realizing that it is frustratingly enigmatic. We can't know the end from the beginning. We don't know what's next. Ecclesiastes 3 talks about these seasons that we go through. But yet we can't not wonder. We can't not touch it. That is the frustration that Solomon's trying to help us understand. God gives us, this is your universe, this is what I want you to do in it. We begin to do our job, but inherent in the job God gave us was trust and obedience. That's the goal that he had for us. And so man's voice then was the second voice. And Adam used his voice in a way that was consistent with what God wanted him to do. But as you know, That's not the only voice. Man desires to be autonomous. This is, uh, actually it should say man hears a third voice of counsel. I think that's what your notes say. Man hears a third voice of counsel. My PowerPoint is incorrect there. So a third voice enters the garden. A third voice enters the garden. You see that in chapter 3. We're back in Genesis. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And what? He said to the woman. Until this moment, there had been only two voices in the universe. God's voice and man's voice, which would include Adam and Eve. God's voice and his creation's voice. But now we get a third voice. And it says, and he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What happens? The serpent begins to counsel. This is the first time in the universe that the counsel, the conversation, isn't a God-honoring, God-submissive voice of counsel. So he says, has God indeed said? 
You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said again, well, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What does the serpent offer? He offers her the opportunity in her mind to be as God. You can be like God. Notice, in fact, about what the serpent talks. The serpent says and talks about the very things that God says and talks. He didn't change the categories. He didn't talk about something that Eve had never considered. He didn't walk in and in the process of talking with Eve, produce a moment that was so outside of normal that Eve immediately would have picked up on it. Instead, he was talking the same categories, and in the process of talking the same categories, Eve was easily deceived. I think that's important for you to pick up on it, especially given what we talked about last night. The world is talking about the same things that we talk about. It's not a different category. But what are they doing? They're applying their own interpretation. They're implying a different voice of counsel. So the serpent's voice then becomes the third voice of counsel. So we have God's, we have man's, and now we have the serpent's. Notice then how everything has changed. We have gone from orientation. Now, what is orientation? Orientation is God saying to man, this is your purpose. This is what pleases me. This is what honors me. This is what I want you to do. This is what, these are my expectations. You can do these things. You cannot do this thing. And this is the way I want you to live. So he orients man to the world around him. And what happens with the third voice? The third voice comes in and he disorients. So what's north isn't north anymore. Everything has a twist to it. Right? Being in a place where uh, I've never been before, it's important to pay attention to directions. It's important to know where did we go? Which turn did we make? We've been on the four by four every day this week, actually, and it's been enjoyable. But we've been on the 4 by 4 taking those trails. Now, we had a forest map. But a forest map absolutely does you no good whatsoever if you don't know where you are. <laughs> right? You have to know something in order to read a map. You have to have a sense of where am I at? Which way is north? Where have we been? Right? It's, we were trying to do it by memory yesterday, and I made one wrong turn. Maybe, maybe five or ten seconds down the road, I realized, nope, we're going the wrong direction. And I pulled the map out and said, yep, look, I made that turn. I needed to make that turn. I'm typically decent with those things. My twin brother, absolutely clueless. He would still be driving around somewhere 
in the woods or calling saying, hey, I'm going to send you my location. Uh, please come get me. It's a difference uh, between us for sure. You have to have north. Well, what does, this, what does the third voice do? It confuses north. What was right, now the third voice says, no, nah, that's not right. Where they were wanting to be submissive, he suggests, you don't have to be submissive. Nah, this is what the Lord really knows. The third voice disorients us to reality. Friends, we live in a world when, right, it was on free this week on Twitter. Uh, I don't know the guy's name. Um, but there, was a, there is a program called What is a Woman? It was on Twitter free yesterday. Might be all weekend, but it was free yesterday. And I hadn't seen it. I'd heard about it. Saw that it was on free. Uh, so I clicked on it. Watched the whole hour. Uh, maybe, might be over an hour. I'm not sure. Unbelievable that you can walk into college campuses, talk to a professor that his, her role and his role, I think, was to specifically teach sexuality and ask him, what is a woman? And he can't give an answer. Right? That suggests that reality is really disoriented. Right? This, we are following the Romans one pattern. Right? When you sin, and that's what I mentioned earlier, Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. When you sin, what? There is never satisfaction. The last word, if we go back, just let me give you Ephesians 4, 19. It says, to work all uncleanness, what? With greediness. It means you're never satisfied. No matter how far you go, it's not far enough. Because reality has been turned on its head. In some sense, you can say that the compass was changed in this moment. And since this day, Satan's voice was the third voice. And that third voice is a disorienting voice. And that's why our job becomes so much more important. Well, what actually changed? Well, Adam's relationships were affected, <clears throat> and let me suggest, pardon me, in several different ways. First, his relationship with God. Where he had been submissive, where he had been living and doing those things that honored God now, all of that has changed. His relationship with God is different now he's gone from a relationship that was full of unity and harmony with God to he becomes God's enemy. He needs God's covering. Right? He's fallen. So his relationship with God changed. His relationship with self. He no longer saw himself the way that he did prior to the sin. Now he's dealing with shame. Genesis makes an important note about that. In Genesis 2.25, he says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. But in chapter 3, immediately, they're looking for covering. Right? Their eyes are opened in a way that they had no sense of. So his relationship with others, his relationship with Eve. You see it in the next chapter, in the next generation. The devastating effects of 
now what's going on. So his sin affected his relationship. Number four, sin will always cause problems in one of these three areas. Or we could say maybe not in one of these three areas, but in all of these areas. Right? That's why James can say that when sin conceives, pardon me, when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death and all kinds of destruction. So what do we know now? Well, now there's this knowledge of good and evil. Where Adam once walked and followed the Lord and had a good relationship with God, now things are different. He desires to be autonomous. He's blinded by his own sin. That's why Ephesians 4 discusses it in such clear ways when it says that there Minds are darkened, right? It's impossible to see accurately. Having their understand, understanding darkened, they're in the futility, they walk in the futility of their mind. So they're blinded by sin. And as you know, in chapter, chapter 3, we begin to see the first Blame shifting. God says to Adam, what are you doing? Adam says, well, it was that woman. She's why I sinned that you created. But it wasn't, wasn't enough to horizontally blame. But what? He blames God. You're the reason I sin. Boy, people do that all the time still, don't they? Things haven't changed much. And so blame shifting begins. And of course, Eve blames the serpent. Well, man desperately needed the intervention of the first voice. From orientation, we've already said these, to disorientation. And now in chapter 3, we get reorientation. In verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's really more of a thunderous noise. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I just said to you, it affected the way they viewed God. It affected the way they viewed each other. The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And he said, well, I heard your voice. I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. Again, all of these emphasize the effects of sin. And he said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of the, that I commanded you? You should not eat. And the man said, well, the woman affects it with others. That you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. So now he's living in fear. Right? Everything is shifted. Everything has changed. Because we have disorientation. But God graciously, in verse 8, he comes to the garden. God didn't stay in heaven or stay where he was at. God didn't leave Adam and Eve alone to make their own covering. No, God provided them covering. 
Verse 21, Adam and his wife, for them the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And he protected them, even though they faced the curse of sin. So God is the voice of reorientation. God's voice is slow, and it invited a response. Think about that. God could have immediately punished. He could have immediately held them accountable for their sin. But instead, it's a slow voice, and it's still a voice that invites people to respond. God is patient. God not only spoke words of redemption, he moved with compassion. God is the one who made the first step toward this redemptive process. God is the one who moved toward them and offered them hope. He offered them a covering. Now, they didn't understand the future covering, the atonement that was necessary, but certainly it's a covering. Well, what about chapter 4? In chapter 4, the need for biblical counseling grows as we see Cain's condition. Cain seeks his own way to approach God. Right, the instead of bringing an offering that God that God would accept, Cain seeks his own way. He fails to respond to repentance. Notice in verse three, it says, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So he wants to do it his way. God did not accept it for whatever reason. We would say probably simply because of his heart. So the Lord says to Cain, well, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? God again moves toward redemption. He moves toward getting it fixed. Becoming essentially this future atonement. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you follow what I've asked you to do, if your heart is right, I'll accept you. And if you do not do well... Sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. But Cain does not respond. Instead, his anger turns against Abel. A vertical problem, right? Catch this. A vertical problem with God, how does it play out? It plays out horizontally against others. He's angry with God because God didn't accept him and accept his heart. And that turns toward Abel. And as you know, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, verse 8, and killed him. So Cain's anger turns against Abel. And the Lord says to Cain, well, where is Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He says, well, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so he and God begin to act, and Cain responds sinfully to his guilt. 
both against his brother, and then as he continues to talk to God, he responds that way toward God. So it continues to grow. Now let's jump a lot of years. The need is brought down to our day in 2 Timothy 3. Right, You're aware of this text. It's not new to you. It says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Now catch verse 6, for of this sort are those who creep into households. He's not even talking about unbelievers in terms of that are outside the church. He's talking about people who are in the church. And friends, don't we see that? It just has gotten worse. And so how do the voices interact today? Let's close out our time thinking through these clear, a couple of key issues here. How do the voices interact today? What about the way we use our words? All right, there's a couple of four things I have listed here for you. All counsel has an agenda and objectives. Every time you speak, your message is loaded, right? When you talk, there's something that you're trying to communicate, right? There's no scientific counsel that's completely neutral. When, when a scientist or when any person who's doing empirical research says something to you, this is the way it is, you have to know that that's loaded, we were yesterday, we were reading some signs in uh, over in the uh, Deadland. No, Badlands. Yeah, <laughs> horrible with those types of things. Badlands. We were, I know where I'm at, but I don't know what it's called. So we were over in the Badlands and we were reading some signs and it was describing what? It was saying, well, this is what you're looking at. These are the various colors. This is ash. This is this. This is that. And what's it doing? It's doing it with the agenda. Right? It's not scientific neutral counsel. My, my youngest, my 11-year-old said, Dad, do you read all this stuff? He said, I'll tell you why it's this way, because of water. I said, oh, really? Tell me more about it. He said, yeah, it was because of the flood. And the ash is there because after the flood, there were volcanoes. It was crazy. And he started explaining to me how he was perceiving why all those things were there. And I thought, that's excellent. Because he understands that scientific finding isn't neutral, right? Even it has agenda attached with it. Think of typical examples. Think of a, if we said, well, you know, it's supposed to snow, right? The weatherman, he says, stay tuned. Snow's on the way. He's not just telling the forecast. No, he's trying to drive up his ratings. He'll send a tweet out. Watch at 10, snow's on the way. He's trying to make his thing more popular. He's got an agenda to talk about snow. Maybe the wife says, oh, I love snow. It's so beautiful. Right? Same set of facts, but 
she sees it as beautiful. Somebody else says, well, this wicked storm, this is full of fear. I'm going to walk outside and break my hip. Right? It's, it's got an agenda. Same set of snow. Something's falling from the ground, falling from the air. Somebody else says, oh, it's beautiful. We love it. Children say, it's going to be great. Running and playing, if it's bad enough, school can be out. It's got to be real bad, but if it's bad enough. Same facts. Everybody has their own set of agenda that's attached to it. Right? That's just a simple illustration. But it is typical to the way that we view the world around us. Human beings... Actually, there's two. Th- I think I skipped letter B there on the PowerPoint. That's all right. In what other ways do we receive counseling? I have two things listed for you here. In modeling and in action. Right? We model, we receive what we observe, and when we do with other people. Right? So we learn. We often, we take people with us. If we're trying to learn how to do something, we have people observe. We work with our children. So... There are several ways that we learn or to receive counseling, both model and action. And human beings live in an ocean of counsel. We live in a proliferation of counsel. We breathe counsel like fish breathe water. Right? It's all around us. Again, just to walk into a park yesterday, there's counsel on a sign that my own money paid for. Or somehow. Right, it's everywhere we go. We talk to people. If it's from the weatherman to whomever, people are giving us counsel. Well, we have creation. We had the fall. We're going to think briefly then about redemption. That's where we're at now. We talked about Hebrews 3 briefly yesterday. We're going to talk about it just briefly again, just to give you a a broad sense of redemption. In Hebrews 3, it says, Beware brethren, right? So who is in view? It's people who would claim to be followers of Jesus. Beware brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. In departing from the living God, what are we told to do? Exhort one another daily. When? All the time. Daily. It's part of everyday life. Why? Because he's concerned that we would be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. See, the writer of Hebrews understood that that third voice is full of counsel and it disorients. It's full of counsel and it pulls you away from God. It doesn't draw you near to God. And so Hebrews 3 is helpful to understand why it's so important. What about Titus? In Titus 2, I think there's a helpful bit there too. When we think about our message in Titus 2, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation, in verse 11, has appeared to all men. So grace has come. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, or having denied, right? It was at the point of salvation. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. 
So grace came. Let's go to verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Grace has come. Jesus is the source. The purpose of it is to change. The message is a message of redemption. God came to redeem people. Jesus came to buy people out of this slave market of sin and to make them pure, to make them his special people. Verse 13, we skipped it. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's about now, yes, and about life now, but it's also about the future. And so what do we want to do? We want to counsel while there's still time. He says to speak these things, exhort and rebuke. Do it now because our time is limited. Why did Christ come? Well, Christ came with a from to agenda. He wants to take us from disorientation to reorientation. From a slave to sin to now a slave of righteousness. From dead in trespasses and sins to alive in Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus came, as it says in verse 12, to change us. To move us away from ungodliness and worldly lust so that now we can live soberly, righteously, and godly. So where do we start? You have to start in your own heart. You have to start with your own inner look. We're going to talk about that today after lunch because that's necessary. One other passage as we wrap up. In Colossians, we understand the message. We read it last night. We read several of these verses to start the conference. But in Colossians 1, Paul's talking about his ministry. I'm going to jump in the middle of a paragraph. Forgive me for that. But in verse 27, it says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, that's Christ, we preach what? Warning, that's our word, nuthetao. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So our goal is to preach, is to teach, is to counsel or to disciple. By teaching them to observe in Matthew. To preach, teach, or counsel Christ for what? For maturity. Because we have people who have heard the voice, the third voice. And they live in this proliferation of counsel. TV, internet, every way you can imagine, we're getting counsel. They live in that world. And so we preach Christ because Christ is the voice of reorientation. Christ is the voice of redemption. Christ helps someone understand the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 way of the, this is the way we're supposed to live. And so we preach Christ for maturity. Our content is Christ. It goes back to what we said last night. We don't need to authority from all the other sources. We need Christ. Notice what it says in chapter 2. 
It's Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? It's in Christ. They're not, it's hidden from the world. It's clear to us. Right? It's not hidden from us. We're in Christ. And in Christ, in the word of Christ, we have the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the warning, the caution, is if we don't teach Christ, we're going to emphasize in Adam and not in Christ. Look at verse 4. He says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. If you want to write write down one text, let me just refer briefly to Acts chapter 13. You can just jot it down as something to go back and read. In Acts 13, you've got this Jew named Bar-Jesus. And he's there and he's... uh, Paul and Barnabas are giving the gospel to the proconsul in Cyprus. And there's this guy there named Bar-Jesus. He's a sorcerer. And notice what he's doing. He is talking alongside Saul, which becomes Paul, right? So he's, he's talking alongside Saul. Paul's trying, or Saul Paul, is trying to tell the proconsul about God and how to be saved. But you have this voice of the world. And so Paul says, being filled with the Spirit, verse 10, he says, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? That is a great, really a great assessment of the third voice. It's full of deceit. It's full of perversion. The world is full of a bunch of fraudsters. And they are doing their best to make crooked the way of the Lord. Our challenge is to live consistent with it. Lord, would we do that well? Thank you that you move toward us in redemption. Thank you that you're a voice of reorientation. Now may we live consistent with it in Jesus' name. Amen.